Welcome to the podcast found in pale leather. I'm Catherine. And I'm Gabe. All gates and hands be open to you. So we read the fourth chapter of Godstock this week, which is called The Heart of the Maze. And my book is too full of tabs for me to flip <laughs> through it. This is, this is what I've come to. This is what I've been reduced to. <laughs> so this week we read The Heart of the Maze, which is chapter four. And... This chapter follows Jame as she finds Penari in his maze and joins the Thieves Guild as his apprentice. And as she makes a new friend in Dali, a new rival in Scramp, and a dangerous impression on the certain Theokandai and on his student Bane. I'm so excited! <laughs> I love this chapter. <laughs> and I do love Bane and Dali very much in radically different ways. Radically different. Let's begin. Lead the way, Gabe. Well, I do have like a very first note here, three sentences from the beginning of the chapter. And the thing that I made a note of is that this is the first time that Jame introduces herself with a epithet rather than with her name or her place of origin. And I think that that's really, uh, she identifies herself to Penari as Jame the Talisman, because that is how he misheard her family name in the very first chapter. And... I just think that's interesting because as we get, first of all, like this just seems to be a world where like uh, nicknames and epithets are the running thing. But especially among the Kenserath, the further we get into these books, the more evident it becomes that like basically you only use your family name until you earn yourself an epithet. And once you have an epithet, you don't introduce yourself by like place of origin you don't introduce yourself by like who your lord is do you introduce yourself with like name epithet and then maybe you include like mm -hmm. your allegiance and i just think it's really cool that like that's clearly something that jane latches onto really fast because she it's mentioned that when she does introduce herself with her last name it's a surprise to her that she would think to do that and it's a struggle for her to call it to mind on the spot and part of that is because she's working with a lot of amnesia but it's just so automatic for her to call herself the talisman as like this epithet this like title that was given to her and it's it's very telling about the way the kenserath think and i like it a lot yeah and it's also it's also interesting because james shifts her perception to how pinari would remember her she i, yeah. I kind of saw it that you know james recognizes that pinari will remember talisman but may not remember james probably barely remember the situation and the other thing is like that is part of the reason that i think the kenserath use epithets so much because like they're not that big a group so the ability to know who someone is right off the cuff is really valuable it's just radically different from the way that the rest of the world seems to use epithets. We eventually meet someone in Titastagon who goes by the name Sart Nine Toes. And he's like kind of the only person who uses an epithet regularly among the people we meet in Titastagon. And that's just, it's very distinct in that that seems like a joke that was maybe ascribed to him mm -hmm. by his like fellow guards whereas the kind of epithets that the Kenserath use are so much you know you earned this by being like that kind of person and that's what you're gonna stick with you know sharp tongue black lord iron thorn they're they're much more about the person mm -hmm. in a way that calling someone nine toes kind of isn't yes it's a much more it's much more an issue of like being memorable and like telling people up front who and what you are. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I love, I love that. And I love how quickly Jame latches onto the epithet she's been given by this really confused old man in an alley. Like it's really telling about how much, even though she's kind of taking this time away from the Kenserath and she's kind of trying to self-identify outside of the Kenserath, Jame still very much considers herself a part of that. And like on some instinctive, level still sort of aligns herself with the way the Kenserath think. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just really like that. It's it's a weird little thing, but I like it a lot. It really does speak to how a person can live into themselves. And and I, this is this is and Jame is a character who knows nothing about herself, barely even what she looks like, and she she's defined herself by a misheard name. And it's I, I think it really speaks to Jame as a 
person that she really steps into that fully and completely. Especially given that she ties a string to herself uh, and latches oh, it onto what? This is this is just such a good solution. <laughs> <laughs> she knows that she's probably going to get lost, so she <laughs> tied the end of a large spool of thread to the post of one <laughs> of one door, struck a torch, and just started walking. <laughs> and like, it's just, it's such a James solution, because she's gone to this maze looking for Panari, and it's a known fact about this maze that plenty of people go in and never come out because it's such an absolute disaster inside that no one but Panari knows how to navigate it. And so her solution initially is to just stand outside the front door and holler and see if Panari comes out. He does not. He does not. And following that, she goes inside, ties herself to a door, and just kind of starts doing laps of the five levels of the maze just yelling the whole time <laughs> which like is a very direct solution it is. i will give her that much absolutely understandably this doesn't go as well as it could she reaches the fifth level runs out of thread and the floor gives out underneath her she falls a couple of stories into a pool of water with something else in it and we discover fairly quickly that something else is a moon python. <laughs> I'm not sure we're explicitly told how big this snake is, but I think it is like its head is about the size of a human head. So like this is a very large snake and I love snakes. I really do. I'm very much the kind of person where someone's like, oh, hey, look, do you want to like look at this reticulated python that's like super huge, but very docile? And I'm like, yeah, can I pick it up? However, I think that if I was dropped unexpectedly into a dark room full of water with a giant snake, I too would be kind of stressed out. Yes, yes. And you would probably faint on the spot. Uh, totally. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what I think is what I think is really endearing about Monster is that Monster is so terrified of James, Monster wraps himself around Panari in this shivering kind of terrified... He hides behind <laughs> Panari. He puts his head on Panari's shoulder because he's so afraid. <laughs> yeah, and like, you know a ball python? The way they like ball up when mm -hmm. they get scared? Monster does that behind Panari, who's this like tiny old man, and it's very sweet, but also like, I understand why Jame is kind of alarmed by this. Oh, yeah, yeah. And with that, that beautiful description in the darkness when she's scrambled out of the pool of water onto the stone and she hears this liquid chuckle as something surfaces and then dives again. That's just... Yeah. I did want to mention, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here because spoilers, but Monster doesn't have any teeth, which uh, Jame points out. And Panari's response is, being a moon python, he doesn't need him, said Panari with more loyalty than truth. And the rel the only relevant detail here is that that is Panari in a nutshell, more loyalty than truth. Yep. And somehow he makes that like work pretty well for him. This is going to come up again. Pay attention to it. Yeah. So Jane has this conversation with Panari and she's like, so you offered to make me a thief? Like, is that offer still open? And Panari kind of drags her on this whirlwind tour of the maze. And then he hands her some money and tells her to go buy monster dinner. Go buy a pig for monster's dinner. <laughs> so for a few days, James just comes to the maze each day and um, runs errands for Panari. And for like several days, she's just like, have I sorely misunderstood the job you were offering me? Like, I was kind of hoping to learn how to steal shit. <laughs> After four or five days, five days, yeah, she shows up again and Panari just joins Jame as she leaves the maze and drags her off to the Surden's Palace, the headquarters of the Thieves Guild, basically rolls up to the guild secretary, cuts in line past everyone else waiting to see him, and is just like, this is the talisman, I want to enroll him as my apprentice. <laughs> And there's a couple things here. First of all, this whole conversation with the guild secretary is hysterical. Yes. Because it is just Pinari bulldozing this poor man who's just trying to do his job yep. for a whole page. With a crowd of witnesses all around gawking. Literally everyone in the room is just like, I came down here to fill out some paperwork, but time for a show. <laughs> 
It is really hysterical. It also we under we get to understand part of why um, Panari like offered this position to Jame because he's extraordinarily smug when he tells the guild secretary that like I grabbed a Kensir off the street and I'm gonna turn him into a thief and like none of you chuckle fucks can say anything about it. <laughs> but the critical thing here is that Jame has thus far been unsuccessful. On that very first night when she met Panari, she tried to tell him she wasn't a boy and he super didn't buy it. And so this is kind of James' last stand of trying to get Panari to, like, realize she's a girl because the poor fucking secretary looks straight at James and is like, all right, bear a shoulder, boy. Let's see how that goes. And James is like, all right, and, like, strips her shirt off in this room full of people so that she can be stamped with the sigil of the Thieves' Guild. And she's standing there shirtless, the second secretary is speechless <laughs> and Penari's just like all right boy like stamps her and is like let's do it hell yeah <laughs> so i'm gender queer and that's that means that i'm always really into like those mulan plot lines of like going in disguise to like achieve some sort of thing but specifically this is the only thing i've ever seen where there's really no evidence that jame would not be allowed into the thieves guild if she was a woman yeah. like it's not really common but it's not it's not against the rules. It's it's not taboo. Yeah, like everyone else in the Thieves Guild knows she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And the only reason she doesn't tell Panari is because at this point she's like, oh, but it would just be really awkward. <laughs> And it delights me that the entire reason that she is, like, scamming this poor man into believing she's a boy is because it would just be too awkward to tell him the <laughs> truth at this point. And I am so charmed by that level of, like, total disinterest in the way she's perceived by the world. It's very, it's very charming to me. Like, it's just delightful that everyone else is like, no, like, we know, we know the talisman's a girl. Mm -hmm. Like, we know this. Like, especially the fucking guild secretary who's sitting there and who's like, I technically have you charted down as a Kensier man. We all know that's not right. <laughs> but, like, I did it anyway because I really wanted Panari to leave. And J I imagine him and Jame, like, having this moment of connection where he's like, hey, listen, I just want to ha and put you down as male because I want him to get out. And Jame's like, no, that's that's totally fine. Like, I'm not going to try and convince him otherwise at this point. <laughs> and it's just really delightful. Also, because I just have to get this shit off my chest. I don't know how many of you are reading this book along with us, specifically with the new Bane covers. Yeah. That's B-A-E-N, yes. which is about to become relevant. But I love and appreciate Bane for keeping these books in print and making sure that they get published all the way through the series and that, all that good shit. However... However. However. The airbrushing. Okay, not to put too fine a point on it, Jane is flat as a fucking board, and these covers make her look like she's bustier than your average porn star. And, like, that just makes me really, like, it makes me crazy, and it's awful, because my, like, problem isn't even, like, hey, like, what if you didn't present this action star in these weird tit and ass poses? It's, yeah, but you ha clearly haven't read the book, because especially in this first one, there's a whole narrative that is exclusively driven by the fact that Jane, like, is extremely extremely flat chested yeah, yeah. there's a whole thing and like this is ongoing mm -hmm. every single book has at least one minor plot point that mostly only works because jane can pass for a boy mm -hmm. if she puts her hair up yep i have a note in the fucking book in the margin where i underline the spot where jane is like well all right like Pinari's too blind and i'm too flat and i guess that's the end of it and it just says fuck the cover <laughs> So that's where I'm at sort of spiritually with this. <laughs> Which, you know, <laughs> uh, yes, everything that she said. And <laughs> and Panari, Panari's attitude is that this chapter is over and now we're moving on. The episode is apparently over as far as Panari was concerned. And he just takes turns around and takes off. Panari is the ultimate in a linear thinker, basically. He's very much like, I went out to do this thing, I did this thing, and now I'm going to leave. And he leaves total chaos in his wake, and he's just like, someone else will deal with it. Yep. 
And Panari is, he clearly has this position in Titastagon as almost this mythic character. Because yeah. I, I, I imagine that, uh, you know, she, she mentions that, uh, word of their arrival was clearly ahead of them because the, the, uh, the Thieves Guild secretary's office is packed. And, uh, all the conversation stops when they walk in. And I imagine just all of these heads all turning. It is really great, especially since, like, Panari is clearly leveraging his position to get James accepted it's very good yeah and his and his statement that uh cancer of course it is you think i'd trust my secrets to any of this rabble so pinari just has no problem telling the entire infrastructure to go fuck off it's really great which leads us to the creepy dude yeah so this has all been a fun time but like time for things to get dark again yeah things are gonna get really really serious and i think that the the description of the the introduction of this particular character is actually i personally find it really fascinating because the quality of this individual is is indicated in how this person introduces himself to Jane by putting a hand on her arm with the nails of the index and middle fingers filed to sharp points. And though this man digs his those fingernails into James' arms for the sole purpose of it to hurt. And that's how Jame is introduced to Sirdan Theokandai, or actually his servant. Well, his student. This is Bane. And the only real description we're given of Bane is these sharp nails and the fact that he has, like, a darker complexion and luminous gray eyes. Mm -hmm. And we said we weren't going to do spoilers on this podcast, and by God, I intend to stick to it. But holy fucking shit, y'all. Like, having read the rest of this book and, like, the rest of the series that is currently published, like, this introduction of Bane, I had to, like, get some shit off my chest before we started recording because I was just like, all I want to talk about today is Bane. Unfortunately, 85% of what I have to say is spoilers. <laughs> but it was fantastic, and I, I'm, I'm excited for all of you to hear it again. Um. Okay, so obviously these books are full of what you would call, like, questionable characters. And trust me, Bane is... Bane is a monster, mm-hmm. like through and through. Bane is a terrible person, and I'm absolutely enthralled by him on this level of like rabbit animals, their eye shine is green, right? Like bright emerald green, and it's not something that you see anywhere else. But it does mean that, like, if you can get a look, it is kind of an enthralling color because it's so unusual and it's so strange. And Bane feels kind of like that in the sense of like, you are a fundamentally dangerous creature and I don't want you anywhere near me or anyone else, but also mm-hmm. that eye shine is so strange. Mm-hmm. And um, I understand that I've gotten very off topic for a character that we are given under a paragraph about at this time, but I just really want to convey how much work I have done not to spend this entire episode telling everyone every spoiler about me. Yeah, I, everyone... <laughs> be impressed but so bane comes uh and we don't learn his name yet but so um this man with the gray eyes and the sharp nails comes and sort of corrals jame and is like the certain theoconda i would like to see you mm-hmm. and Pinari's like have a good time talisman yep, give my regards tell him to, like Tell him to get fucked from me. <laughs> and, what's, what, and, and being in, in perfect Pinari style, he disappears fairly gurgling with some secret mirth, which is like so on brand for Pinari. Yeah, and so um, Bane, this this man with the silver eyes, kind of herds Jame through the halls of the Thieves' Palace until finally they reach the audience chamber of the certain Theokandai. It's a short conversation, but it is very powerful and like the certain's authority and arrogance is very evident just in this conversation there's one thing that i really do want to mention and that is the how that at a certain point in this chapter things become really sharp you have the the dark uh, uh man with luminous gray eyes with filed nails you have theokandai's sharp uh features uh there's there is really there there are threats here and oh i did want to take a quick moment out of um this like really fraught politically dangerous conversation 
to make a note that um, we get another type of salute here. I now have now I have a bulleted list of salutes that I'm working on. We've had four different types of Kensir salutes thus far. I did warn everyone in the previous episode that I'm like this. But so we have the salute that Jane gives to the Temple of the Three-Faced God in the very first chapter, which is fists raised, wrists crossed. Mm-hmm. And that challenge is specifically stated as let it be war. Mm-hmm. There's fist raised open hand, which is the salute she gives to Marplet Sentenko, acknowledged enemy on the eve of battle. There's crossed wrists held low, fists closed, which is what she gives to the certain Theokandai. As far as I can tell, it's respect to a superior or a lord who you're wary of. Mm-hmm. And she says that there's an additional salute that we don't see explicitly, and it's crossed wrists held low, hands open which is respect to a superior or a lord that you're friendly with. Yes. And, like, I'm just going to continue this list, and every time someone does another salute, I'm going to be like, hey, guys, I've learned another salute and added it to my database. Yeah. And here's here's part of the reason why I love it when you talk about salutes. Each one of these salutes speaks to the specific intent of the person who is giving the salute and the position of the person who is receiving the salute. And with each one of those salutes, there is an unspoken message and also indication of not just a perceived relationship, but the reality of relationship that is present between the two people. And there's so much that's packed into the position of hands that there, it, it really, it adds to the luscious quality of the culture of the Kenserath and also all of the cultures within these books, since not everyone within the book is, uh, is a Kenser. And I think that's the other really interesting thing, because as far as I can tell, these are Kenser salutes. Mm-hmm. Because, like, here, Jane gives Theokandai a wary salute. Like, she salutes him as a unknown, unfriendly quantity. Mm-hmm. And later in the books, if you, like, when someone salutes, like, a superior or a lord that way, there are consequences. Mm-hmm. I don't think your average Tastagon civilian or even your average Tastagon thieves lord speaks the intricate language of Kenser salute. Like, as far as I can tell, on the one hand, this is presumably the primary way that that the Kenserath, who are a a warrior people, interact with the outside world, is like salutes and combative-like gestures. So there's clearly some degree of comprehension, but like, people don't, like, jump on that gestural shit as intensely in Titastagon as they eventually will in the Riverland in the heart of the Kenserath. And it just reminds me a lot of, I know I've beat this horse to death, but it reminds me a lot of the Ancillary series, like the culture of the Imperial Rotic in that. And that's really all I have to say here. I just got distracted because there was a salute. <laughs> I got excited about it. Salutes speak volumes because, and the, and what they speak about are the is the identity of the person who is making the salute and the identity of the person who's receiving the salute and all of that space in between. That's I think part of what is really luscious about about Jane and her connection to her Kensir heritage when she knows nothing really about her place in it other than she is not wanted in the Kensir uh, universe. And I think that that's, that's really an interesting way of, of perceiving oneself in a world where you feel a connection to your culture, but there is a sense of not knowing that you don't belong or you're not, you're not sure that you have a place. And that's what I think is so powerful about Jane in her connection, clear connection to the Kensirath and her conflicted experience with it. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not just you. Uh, yeah, but no, really, do be ready for this every time. If you read a chapter and you're like, oh, there's a salute in this, you can just be like, Gabriel will tell me all about it. <laughs> and yes, please don't stop. And I, I okay, I just got to say, I had read this book probably seven or eight times before I introduced it to you. And even though I loved the salutes, I never counted them. So this is a new thing for me. Keep going. Don't you worry. I've got that shit on lock. Yay. Okay, so Theo Kondai is one creepy fucker. He, he's, he's not as creepy as some. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, like, here's the thing. He's not creepy. Like, Bane, for example, really kind of radiates this menace on a level that is difficult to articulate, but is really well executed in this chapter. Uh, but Theo Condi isn't, he's not, he's not creepy in that, like, he's not creeping on James, basically, but he has summoned her here to kind of talk around the issue of her spying on Panari and telling him Panari's secrets. And it is this, like, it's unnerving because of the way that he exercises his power, and it reminds me a lot of Ishtir in the previous mm -hmm. chapter, in the scene of Ishtir trying to, like, strike Jame with the power of the temple and lighting her on fire with it because it's him using his power for no reason other than to make it clearer who's in command of yeah. the situation. And because of that, and because of the way that he kind of very carefully beats around the bush of like, there are many ways in which to serve. Some are more advantageous than others. He never says outright, I want you to spy on Panari and tell me everything. But he's so sure of his power and he's so confident in his in his ability to buy Jame off. And like whether that's with power or with money, he's so sure of his ultimate victory here that it does come off as very menacing in a way that I think, like, if he had just straight up sat Jame down and been like, I want you to spy on my brother, like, mm -hmm. straight up, it would be a very different feel, but also that's something Theo Kondai would never do because this is what he's used to. This is the world he's lived in for 40 and years. he has a lot of victories behind him. And yeah. so... He's been winning the certain seat for 40 years. Yeah, it remind it reminds me a lot of those archetypal portrayals of the mafia leader of, you know, yeah. the, Theo Kondai is about to make her an offer that she can't refuse. But the offer won't be made in a direct way, but in a way of it would be so nice. What a wonderful relationship yeah. that we could build when we give to one another in this way. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Yeah, like, what a friend you could yeah. have if you did this thing for me. And it's just, I find Theo Kondai, I think, even more compelling for the fact that he really does not have, over the course of this book, nearly mm -hmm. as much power as yeah. he thinks he does. As opposed to, say, Ishtir who, when he be acts like an arrogant bitch for the rest of these books, it's because kind of have a degree of beck and call yeah. over Jane that Theo Kondai just doesn't. But so Theo Kondai is about halfway through this, like, mob boss offer Jane can't refuse when a, like, a boy who it sounds like he's maybe in his, like, late teens comes bounding into the room with, like, a scroll full of historical information and um, addresses Theo Kondai as grandfather. So this we know that this is the Surden's grandson. And Jame realizes that this is the boy who was watching during the attempted murder of Penari during the very first chapter. And everyone is deeply shaken by this encounter. So the the boy is Re like shocked and terrified. Jame and and is terrified. Yeah, clearly <laughs> petrified of her. Um. And the certain is furious at the interruption and it like sets him severely off stride. And Jame is kind of shaken because she's like, hey, like, kid, why were you mm -hmm. like chilling while some people tried to murder mm -hmm. Panari? And so this sets everyone pretty badly off their stride. And um, the certain is like, all right, fine, like, get out of my office and we'll just continue this discussion later. And Jame, she has the last word. <laughs> Yeah, I, I have a note here, actually. She's like, absolutely, my lord. Like, um, I like she gets up to leave. I do think it's interesting. Jame addresses every like, even though Theo Kondai is addressed as a lord by the thieves of Titastagon, Jame is very given to using Kenserath structures as a way to give sense to outside mm -hmm. systems. So, like, she's very given to, like, my lord, mistress, like, that sort of formalized structure, even in Titastagon, where things are usually a lot more lax. But so she tells Theoconde, like, very well, my lord, and then she stops in the doorway and says, oh, by the way, my master sends his regards and I'm out. leaves. And she <laughs> fucking goes. And, um... 
I have to admit, I really love that exchange in particular because, you know, on the one hand, Jane professionally gets mm-hmm. the last word. Yeah, like, this is what yeah. she does. But in addition to that, it's a very good insight into how things are for Jane because um, Penari is her master now, like, sworn and sealed by the Thieves' Guild. And so as far as Jane is concerned, even an offhanded command like give certain theokande my regards is Mm -hmm. law like that is an order from her master and Mm -hmm. she has to follow it and like even though she knows she's making a bad situation worse with Mm -hmm. that comment um and i just think that's really cool uh and so as she leaves the hall jame is kind of considering the intricacy of her situation the complexity And she's thinking about how she understands why Mm -hmm. Panari chose her as a Kensier to be his apprentice. And the way she phrases it is, he had taken revenge on everyone trying to learn his secrets by choosing to confide not only in an outsider, but in one whose very race was to him a guarantee of her incorruptibility. The the views on Kensier are pretty varied outside of their own closed system of the Kenserath, but... I do think it's really interesting that even the people who don't generally think well of the Kensir as a group are prepared to take Kensir yes. at their word. And they are prepared to trust that maniacal obsession with honor, that same obsession with honor that drove Jame exhausted and sick and starving and dying to stand on her feet and face death like an honorable <laughs> warrior in the very first chapter. It's it's a very quick encapsulation mm-hmm. of how the dynamic between Jame and the rest of yeah. the world works is this this um, decision that Penari makes to confide in someone who merely by the fact of her accent is a guaranteed incorruptible force. Yes, and the, the power and presence of this identity of these people is is really powerful yeah so jame continues out of the she also gives a little bit of consideration to the grandson of the certain um but she continues out of the courtyard and she's still thinking about this when the man with the silver eyes the dark man with the silver eyes comes to find her flanked by like cronies Mm -hmm. basically like or i suppose he's i think the thing about bane is that he's a little bit too um, even though he's not really fundamentally a classy person, he's not of high class in this society. He has this aura of like assurance that means that he doesn't have cronies. He has a tendency. Yes. Superiority. Yeah. And so he just like walks past her and he's just like, oh, there's a meeting at the three legged dog to be there. And he just keeps going. Like he, it's not even a conversation. It's just attention, Kmart mm-hmm. shoppers. Like this mm-hmm. is what's happening. And of course she'll drop everything and be there is the is the inherent assumption yeah well the assumption is that not only does he have the authority to give her orders he has the authority to give her orders and expect yes. that they be followed so he is very surprised when he gets several steps away and jame like she doesn't really protest elaborately she just very quietly says mm-hmm. no mm-hmm. It, the world stops yeah no this is very much like that moment where the camera has been following jame and that it slams to a halt to like zoom out and take in this whole confrontation because like he immediately turns around to look back at her i do think it's interesting that she talks a lot about how unnerving those silver Mm -hmm. eyes are because this is what before she really has a good grasp on her own appearance and it's been a few chapters since she looked Mm -hmm. at herself in a mirror but jame has silver eyes too and they are unnerving for people And I just, I think it's interesting that she has such a lack of awareness of that. But so Bane turns around and looks at her and he's, his expression is described as incredulous, pleased surprise. He's not angry that she's rejected him. He's not even really offended that she shot him down Mm -hmm. so succinctly, but he's immediately enchanted by this person who just closed Mm -hmm. him down. And it's so great. And he's like, what did you say? And James says, I said, no, I belong to the guild now. And as such, owe loyalty to it and to my master. But no one said anything about jumping when you whistle. And like, just a, that's Mm -hmm. my girl. That's my girl. Just like somebody's trying to manipulate her. And not only does she immediately like see through their bullshit, she's going to close them down right off the bat. But more than that, Bane is so immediately 
fascinated by James' willingness to close him down. And I just, I love that. And I also love Dally. Before we dive into the refreshing presence of Dally, whom I love so much. Talk about playing with me, Mom. (laughs) Mom, play with me in this space. (laughs) The thing, the thing, one of the things that I, well, let me just say, the thing that I love about Jane is her attitude of, I said no, and then she pauses for a beat and she takes in the tableau of these four men who were all armed. All of them with knives and stuck in variety of places. These are people who could kill her. James is willfully deciding to basically yeah. pick a fight with a group of armed men. And there are four of them and one of her and they're all armed and she has her fucking yeah. fists. And, and, I just... she, and she just keeps right on going with the, it's, I, you might have misheard me. I said no. And here's why I said no. And I'm saying no to you. And th- that's, yeah. that again is this, is this deep knowledge and this trust that James has in her, in her sense of honor. Because the thing that she's going to stick with is that she, Penari is her master and Penari belongs to the guild. So she has loyalty to Penari and to the guild and no one else. And that's why she says no. There's no, there's no suggestion that she's thinking to herself, well, I guess I'm going to have to fight these guys. But well, of course I'm going to say no because I'm breathing. And as long as I'm breathing, I'm going to remain loyal to my honor and to those who deserve my honor. And that in combination with Bane's utterly, utterly entranced pleasure in having someone say no to him is, is a, is a really neat counterpoint. Yeah. And I also really like that James is clearly and explicitly planning to run if they <laughs> try to push this. She takes an unobtrusive step back to the stairwell, like, okay. <laughs> Which, like, that is the right move. Yep. The answer, if you're facing four armed men and you are all alone with nothing to your name except your fist, the right answer yep. is to book it. But... I do think it's really interesting because this is really one of those examples of Jame has a degree of confidence in her own abilities, even though she doesn't really remember what those abilities are that I think is really great. That's, that's, yeah, no, everything else I have to say about Bane, I got off my chest before we started the episode. it's so good, you guys. It's so good. So, and... Yeah, no, don't worry. You'll get to hear it when you know all the things about Bane. It's at this point of this tension and this danger. This is a this very is a really, tense really conversation. tense conversation, and it could go bad really fast. And this is when we have the bright ray of sunshine who is Dally. He's so pure. I love Dally so much. <laughs> He's such a good boy. <laughs> he really is. And the and the way that he steps in, and you you started talking about about Dally, and I really want you to continue about uh get uh, about when Dally steps in here. So first of all, Dally is a very sweet child whom I love, but also like he's not always the brightest bulb on the tree, which is demonstrated by the fact that he kind of wanders into this confrontation and, you know, Jane makes the comment that no one said anything about jumping when Bane whistles for her. And Dally just says, quite right, too. No one owes Bane anything he can't extract by force. Which, first of all, I, I love that he just kind of wanders in and comes to her, like, defense, although we're going to get into that a little bit in a minute. Um, but more than that, uh, it says a great deal about Bane and about the way Bane operates in the Thieves' Guild that the way Dally phrases it is no one owes Bane anything he can't extract by force. And again, spoilers, but I love Bane. He's a fascinating mm-hmm. monster and I'm so excited to keep well, talking about yeah. him. Well, and again, again, we have this counterpoint. We have this counterpoint of Pinari and Theokandai. We have this counterpoint of of Bane and Dally both of whom uh both of whom want jame in their sphere of influence yeah bane clearly wants a degree mm-hmm. of control dally not so much but so jame looks at this like new addition to the tableau and i love i love this moment um and she kind of wonders in this like weird out of place moment of amusement um if she's being defended And then she kind of, like, looks around, considers the situation, and she's like, no, actually, I'm just the excuse that, not the cause of this confrontation. Like, they've just been waiting for a reason, and I happen to be here. And then she's like, I don't actually care for that position. And just says, carry on, gentlemen, and walks right through the lot of them and leaves. Which is just so, so spot on for James. Nope. 
I'm out. And it's this very conscious decision of, no, actually, you know what? I don't care to be the excuse for your dick measuring contest. And mm-hmm. she just goes. No finesse. No, She doesn't try to gracefully extract herself. She mm-hmm. just walks out. It's yeah. really great. And, like, she gets away with it. Like, she just walks directly into a crowded market. And they're, like, too shocked by this sudden exit to really mm-hmm. do anything about it. And the man in blue, Dally, catches up with her uh, ways later. And he's like, that was actually very impressive. No one ever stands up to Bane. <laughs> this is my favorite way that Jame ever described herself. Ever. In In her her answer to Dally, you mean? Yeah, Dally says to her, it isn't often that anyone stands up to Bane, especially without support. You must be either extremely brave or phenomenally stupid. And James' response is, mostly the latter, I think, in conjunction with being very tense I just, I, I love her she's, so much. She's, um, uh, she's really pragmatic. Yep, that's what I am. I am phenomenally stupid and extremely cancer. Yep. That's what's up. And Dally is fascinated by the Kenserath. He he becomes a fanboy. Yeah. He's kind of a Kenserath weeaboo. <laughs> but so the thing is, he knows a lot about the Kenserath. And so this is kind of a graceful way to info dump a bunch about the Kenserath without it being like really awkward. Ooh, is it true that you, is it true that you? <laughs> yeah, you've got, just got Dally here being like, oh, is it true that you don't come from Rathilian at all? And you can touch minds with animals and that you can carry each other's souls. And <laughs> James is like, I mean, yeah, like all that's more or less accurate. Like you're right. And she, we also learned that some Kenserath can't endure sunlight, although James can. And most Kenserath are left-handed, although James isn't. Neither is Tori, fun fact. And James is telling him this list of facts, and he's she's like, oh, also, like, I think we've already met because you were the one who dove into the river after the body of that boy. And things get serious really fast. Rim pretty quick here, and Dally tells her a little bit about what's going on, and we don't learn a lot of detail here, but we learn that enough young boys come into the guild looking for someone to sponsor them that quote, Bane can pick and choose. And again, I want to drive home. My fascination with Bane as a character does not mean I think he's a good person, but also, like, I'm really fucking Mm -hmm. fascinated. And, like, that only gets more intense as the book goes on and we understand more about him. And there there will there will be a point in the upcoming chapters when you will be able to really let loose about your fascination with Bane without any spoilers. I cannot wait. I'm so excited. Yeah. But so we learn that Bane is the certain Theokondai's student, but that Theokondai can't really control Bane. Bane is sort of a Bane is very much kind of a law mm-hmm. unto himself. I, I totally should have taken some more critical theory classes in college because I totally could have written every paper ever about the Kenserath. <laughs> but so Bane is kind of a law unto mm-hmm. himself. He's uh, in in a fairly similar but diametrically opposed way yeah. to Jame. But so we learn that Bane is Theokondai's out-of-control pupil and that Theokondai has laid down a general edict to protect Panari. Um... And we learn that this is, A, because Theokondai doesn't want anyone to get Panari's secrets out of him before Theokondai has a crack at them. And B, because Panari is Theokondai's older brother. And, like, clearly, you know, some degree of family loyalty has hung on there. Then we learn that Dali is the younger brother of Mendalis, who is the upstart trying to take Theokondai's throne from him in the next Thieves' Guild election. So, like, this is kind of our intro to some political shit. First of all, Dally makes the very astute point that it can be kind of dangerous to hold Bane's interest, which James so clearly does. And in addition to that, he tells her all of this stuff about the Thieves' Guild and the election and Mandalis and Penari and all of these people. And then he goes, you really don't know much about current events, do you? Do you have any idea what kind of a situation you've walked into? <laughs> her response is so beautiful. If I did, I probably wouldn't be here. And like, yeah, that's what's that's what's going on. And so Dally offers to take her to one of the taverns in Titastagon that's regular frequented by the thieves guild which is generally considered mm-hmm. neutral ground rather than like the meeting bane invited her to is is a strictly theokondai yep, supporting yep. meeting and so he invites her to the moon in splendor which is this uh tavern that um well it's an inn 
that is mostly neutral ground and where he can introduce her to some of the other apprentices. Incidentally, the moon in Splendor seems like an extremely good time and I would love to go there. And I love, I love the name of that tavern and everything about the moon is comfortable. Yeah. So they go to the moon. <laughs> James, James' introduction, her experience of showing up at the moon is... It speaks volumes to Jame and how the world perceives Jame. Because uh, she had a sense of being sized up from all directions, both overtly and covertly. There's something I want to talk about first. Oh, yes, please, go ahead. This is where uh, it's directly addressed that there are not a lot of women in the Thieves' Guild. It's not forbidden. Like, Jame is not pretending to be a man for the sake of staying in the thieves guild dally and everyone else she talks to in the moon is aware of the fact that she's a woman but theokondi doesn't think highly of female thieves so she just makes a note that there aren't a lot of women in the thieves guild and dally's like well at any rate no one can con accuse you of getting in under false pretenses because clearly the story of like yeah no like this kensier just waltzed in here stripped and was like i guess i'm like a thief mm -hmm. now like just took off her shirt and was done um and james joke is uh if anyone says anything about having made a clean breast of it there's going to be bloodshed <laughs> Well, and so Jane clearly recognizes that she is a topic of conversation and a topic of fascination. Yeah, yeah that's that's part of the reason I just wanted to hit this quickly, because Jane, this is sort of our introduction to the fact that Jane is discussed a lot more than I think she would necessarily like or yeah. think she is. Yeah, and she seems to take some comfort in the fact that uh, when when she and Dally walk into the moon in splendor, Dally is greeted with this roar of welcome, and it seems that almost everybody in the in the moon is kind of checking her out and kind of scanning her for you know whether or not she's she's a threat. Answers, dirt. And, and she had the sense of being sized up from all directions and found reassuringly lacking. And that, that's something yeah. that I think my, my sense is that Jane takes some comfort from that. She kind of acknowledges that, okay, I'm not seen as, as much of a threat. So, you know, cause she's, she's literally tapping her way through the dark at this point. She's really flying blind here. And so this is where we meet Scramp, who I mentioned briefly earlier, and he jumps up on a table, introduces uh, Jame to the group as the mm -hmm. talisman. Like, that's how she's addressed in the Thieves' Guild, and I kind of like that. And she has this moment of, like, knowing that they're watching her as she, like, stands up and gives them, like, a formal bow. I have to think that she must be viewed as the most overly formal person mm -hmm. in the entire Thieves' Guild. But so she stands up and gives them a formal bow, and then she's thinking to herself about how among the Kenserath, hesitance like the Thieves' Guild is showing to her would be followed by a challenge. And she is not disappointed because their initial challenge is a flagon containing over a gallon and a half of ale called The Full Measure. Jame, who, not a heavy drinker, looks at The Full Measure and says, propose something else. And so Scramp has something in his back pocket that he just whips out to offer. Yeah, so his proposed alternative to The Full Measure is something reasonably simple. And then he dares her to go get them the Cloud King's britches. And James says... And James is like, okay! And Dally tells her that Scramp was only teasing her, and she says, I've paid him the compliment of taking him seriously as much as anyone can. See you later. And she mm -hmm. just goes. Like, she just leaves immediately. Leaving poor Dally in the wake, wondering how the hell I've, I've, actually, I've actually gotten this Kensir, whom I'm fascinated with, killed. I've met and lost a Kensir within the span of an hour. And so we get a little bit from Dally's point of view here while he's waiting for Jame and during Jame's return. And it again, this is a really interesting way to talk about the Kenserath from this outsider point of view and kind of download some information without making it really exhaustive and exposition-y. So he's thinking about how most Tastagons think about the Kenserath as kind of an exotic oddity. This is where that line I was talking about in the previous episode comes in, which is, you humored people like that, especially if they happen to be the finest warriors 
characters around, but you didn't always take them seriously. And we're told that, first of all, that most people consider the concept of monotheism to be not just strange, but bordering on clinically yeah. insane. So as far as Titastagon is concerned, this is an entire race full of people who are just deeply deluded about the world. But Dali is kind of unusual in that he takes the Kenserath seriously and they fascinate him and he's always wanted to meet a Kensier. And he's so frustrated with himself that he meets one and loses her within mm -hmm. minutes. But just at the point when he is when he is in the darkest of dismay, thinking that all all of the dark shadows of his imagination have come to pass for Jane, she shows up. And the way she shows up is just to walk up to him and say, I see you waited for me. <laughs> Yeah, she just kind of wanders in. She just throws a bundle of cloth to Scramp, and it's just a pair of trousers with the embroidered royal crest of the Cloud King on the back. Which, it's so subtle, and it's so spot on for Jame that she does this thing that clearly nobody thought that this was possible. She not only does it, but she presents it in kind of a nonchalant kind of a way, and everything explodes. Yeah, she just chucks him at Scramp, like... The moon... Everybody goes bananas. Wild. Yeah, and so she does make the point. She's like, I want everyone to be clear. Didn't steal those. I got them legitimately. The Cloud King handed yep. them to me. Because apparently... When she doesn't arrive in the Cloud King's court within a few days, Prince Dandelo, who tried to push her off a roof a week ago, starts sending out scouts to look for mm -hmm. her because he's so eager to, like, have her be cleared to wander the roofs. And so it's her old guide Sparrow who finds her entering the moon and brings her to meet his spacious majesty, the Cloud King, <laughs> who gives her the freedom of the skies and also a pair of old pants when she explains why she Which needs them. Which is delightful. And, and she tries so hard to, like, explain to everyone that, like, I'm not, you know, a grand thief. I, I got these legitimately. I just walked in and asked nicely. Yeah. yeah. And, and no one is listening mm -hmm. to her. Well, and it's it's interesting because you know again I mean to have to have the Cloud King's title be His Spacious Majesty is is like so that. delightful. And again, it, we have a couple of points where there are the reactions of people to Jane really speaks a lot to who she is. I mean, Bane's reaction, Dally's reaction, the Cloud King's reaction. So Scramp's reaction is kind of this counterbeat where the way that Scramp is introduced is that he. He's, he's clearly seen some hard times. You know, he's really skinny. He's really yeah. he's really had kind of a rough life. And, you know, he's trying to hold his position in this societal labyrinth as well as he can. And his reaction to James' story about how she got the Cloud King's britches is to laugh at her. Yeah, and this is a tense moment. And I, I do want to say, I think that a, there's a, a thread of commonality. I mentioned in the previous chapter with Ishtir that kind of James' trademark is to walk into a scenario where she shouldn't have power and either by sheer force of personality or by a, by an action she takes, kind of take that power for herself and be able to wield it. And that's both a highborn thing and a mm -hmm. James thing. But in this instance, Scramp, he may not hold power in the moon and splendor, but he holds a mm -hmm. position and he's kind of a ringleader. And like, he's the person who jumps up on a table and like introduces the new apprentice and like grandstands yeah. and does the performance. And so like on some level, like the fact that Jane makes this huge splash and like doesn't let him tease her or humiliate her for like this hazing ritual and like so resoundingly trumps him in such a short period of time that has some resonance in a similar way to the conversation she has with Ishtir in that he goes from thinking he's in total control of the situation to being like very insecure that James has taken that control yeah. away from him and he reacts by bursting into mm -hmm. laughter and and getting the room to laugh with him and Dally sees James' face go stark white and understands immediately and viscerally what the yeah. problem is. And he is absolutely unable to pretend he's not genuinely alarmed about the way this is going to go. When he grabs Scramp and he says, there's one thing you must never, ever do in dealing with any Kensier, and that's to imply that they aren't telling the truth. It's simply yeah. not healthy. And Scramp takes this warning seriously enough to sit down and shut up. But Jame is standing there in the background and she's shocked and taken aback by how much her first instinct, first of all, by how much her first instinct at having Scramp laugh in her face like this is to mm -hmm. get violent mm -hmm. and like 
to defend her honor and prove that she's telling the truth by any means yeah. necessary. But more than that, this is one of the first times that she's really confronted with the reality that the rest of the world does not appreciate Kenser yeah. honor. They don't take her concept of honor seriously. Yeah. And she has this moment of premonition where she's like, this has the potential to be some trouble mm -hmm. for me. And it's just, it's a very short, tense moment and it's very powerful and it shapes so much of the way that jane deals with the thieves guild for the rest yeah. of this book yeah it really does and you know i i think that the reflections that we have of different people to jane really affords us a kind of a spectacular prism through which to see these experiences that jane is now she is neck deep now in this life there is no way that she can extract herself from this and, yep, this and the now. only thing that she has to to her identity period is her honor because she we don't really know what her name is she doesn't really have her name she's got her she's got this this epithet that is now attached to her god that's true we don't even know her full name yet do we we don't she doesn't know her name she barely knows what she looks like she's not even how she's presenting in the world doesn't match with what her experience is because she doesn't know what her experience she doesn't know who she comes from all she knows is that she is a kensir and there's a lot of negative shit associated with that and so the only thing that she has to her entire identity is her honor and her loyalty yeah i mean jay's possessions at this point are basically the clothes on her back her honor the finger with her father's ring on it and the book wrapped yeah. in linen that's what Jame owns. That's all yeah. she has. The father whom she set on fire because he was a haunt. Yeah, I mean in fairness, like he deserved it. But I think that I think that this is this is I think what's so compelling to me about these books is that Jame is she basically walked out of the ashes when her entire world had burned up. Very literally. And she has no idea even how she knows to defend herself, but she knows how. And all she can do yeah. is just, you know, trust in her honor and just keep right on going. And and so that that's response that she has to Dally, which is probably the former you know, I'm probably phenomenally stupid, plus very, very cancer. And these are things that she recognizes that she can't help. So she makes the best choices that she can with the limited amount of information that she has. And from that perspective, it would be really easy for Jane to be, uh, to be almost calcified in her perspective of other people. But she's not. She has a certain amount of almost flexibility when she's interacting with people. Yeah. And I, I love the humanity that is so present in James' character as she taps her way through this incredibly complex, politically tense and labyrinthine society where, I swear to God, all I want is I just want Clepity to make her food at this point because, you know, shit's going to get serious. That is most of the chapter. After this clash with Scramp, Jame just kind of says to the room at large, like, do you suppose that I might have a small drink now? Yeah. And apparently, because she's made such a splash, apparently everyone in the room orders her a drink. So she asks for a small drink and she gets like 19 of them. Yes. And they're all small, but she has like a lot of drinks. Yep. Yep. And that's the end of the chapter. Before we end, I'd like to add just one other thing. Oh, yeah, I can. go for it. When Scramp proposes something reasonable, <laughs> like fetching the Cloud, the Cloud King's, King's britches, James' response to Dally is, I've paid Scramp the compliment of taking him seriously, or as much as anyone can. And one of the things that I love about this is that that, that sentence, it's both a backhanded compliment full of knuckles, and it is also really quite serious that she's going to take somebody seriously until she knows she can't yeah and to kind of acknowledge that everything that she's dealing with has a double edge and yeah so there there's almost this intuition that jame has that scramp is fighting for his position and yeah. so her taking him seriously will both acknowledge his position in the thieves guild but it will also be in, be a condemnation because he's she's taking him seriously and that's where we really get into the good stuff of yeah the scramp of the thing gets Chronicles. pretty thorny pretty fast 
rest. And Jame, again, is one of those things where, you know, she is, she's going to do whatever she does to the fullest extent of her ability as fully conscious of what she's doing. And then as the book goes on, I don't want to get into spoilers, but uh, she just, I just love Jame so much. <laughs> So the last line of this chapter is after Jame accidentally gets bought, like, a lot of drink. Like, a lot of drink. And the last line of chapter four, and the last line of this this section of Godstock is, Welcome to the Thieves Guild, said Dally with a grin. I love Dally so much. God, I love he's Dally so, so much. So oh, my pure. sweet boy. Oh, uh, my sweet boy. Okay. This has... <laughs> oh, boy. Oh. This has been the podcast bound in pale leather. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please feel free to send us your thoughts and insights about Godstock and what we've read and what your thoughts are on Tumblr at the podcast bound in pale leather or send us an email at podcast bound in pale leather at gmail.com. You can even send us a tweet at podcast B-I-P-L, although in full disclosure, the Twitterverse is still a bit of a wilderness to us. Uh, we also wish to thank Seth Jones for our music. I am Catherine. I'm Gabe. And next week, we'll dive into book two of Godstock with chapter five, Winter Days. Have a lovely week, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.